Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. We've been doing a series called Supernatural. And today's message is about a man, as I said in my prayer, that lived about 4,000 years ago, a man named Abraham. And Abraham is the father of the Christian faith. He's also the father of Judaism. And Muslims also consider Abraham to be the father of their faith. So three of the world's, I guess you could say, great religions, right, all look to Abraham as their father, the father of faith. And today we're going to look at the fact that Abraham's faith was in the supernatural God, right? The supernatural God of promises. God's a promise keeper. He's a promise maker. He's a promise keeper. Everything he says is true. He always comes through. He never fails. As the scriptures tell us, he's not a man that he should lie, right? He is faithful. Now listen, I'm going to ask you for a little bit of help today, okay? You have to help me. You say, how can I help you? Every once in a while, just smile at me. Let me know if, 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 if something strikes you, you know, an amen, even a kind of positive grunt would be encouraging. So, amen, amen. I want to start with a story from a guy named Mark Mooring from Men of Integrity. He tells this story. He says, it was late and my young sons, Peter and Paul, had been in bed for at least an hour. Uh, they had a sister named Mary. Um, so, sorry, I couldn't pass it up. Okay. My wife and I had just returned from our Bible study group, and I snuck into the boys' room to say goodnight. Dad, can I have some ice cream? No, Peter. It's late. It's way past your bedtime. But Dad, you promised. He was right. Peter had asked for ice cream earlier in the day, but we didn't have any. And I had said, I'll get some for you later. I promise. Ooh. Dinner came and went, we cleaned up the kitchen, the boys picked up their toys, the sitter arrived, and my wife and I left for Bible study. I'd forgotten all about the ice cream, but Peter hadn't. So even though it was after 10 o'clock in the evening, I hopped in my car, drove to the convenience store, got a half gallon of ice cream, and hurried home. Peter and I enjoyed that chocolate vanilla swirl together. After all, I had a promise to keep. Amen. Today's message is not a parenting course message, but it does talk about promises and promise keeping. And I think that that story is a great illustration if any of us in this room are parents, and I know a number of you are, that our children listen very carefully to the things that we say. And even when we don't add on the words, I promise, to them, it's a promise if we say we're going to do something. Amen. And we actually help to develop, develop confidence in them about God later if we teach them that we're people of our word and we follow through. And when we fail, we own it. We don't excuse it, we own it. And when we own it, they see that we're sinners too and we need grace and we need God as much as they do, amen? So that's a little side note. But today's message is really about the supernatural God who keeps supernatural promises, We call many of His promises in the Bible prophecies, but really they are God showing us that He is in charge of time, of history, and the future. Today we're going to look at God's supernatural promises to a man named Abraham and how they have come to pass 
and how they are coming to pass right now exactly as God said they would, even though it's almost 4,000 years later. My hope at the end of this message is that our response would be the same as Abraham's response, that we would believe, and in that belief, respond the way God wants us to. Amen? Before we actually um, get into the, I guess you could say, the crux of my message, I want to give you a little bit of background on Abraham, because as I said, he's the father of our faith, and he's the father of what the Bible calls the promise. And if we're going to understand Abraham, we have to understand him in his context. We have to understand him in the world that he lived, in the culture that he was in, and in some of the forces around him that were active in his life when God came on the scene and spoke to him. So Abraham was from a city called Ur. I always love saying that word, Ur. He was from a city called Ur, and Ur is in what we would call modern-day Iraq. Isn't that interesting? It was one of the oldest and most advanced cities on earth during his lifetime. His father, Terah, was named after the moon god. And it is highly likely that they worshipped the moon god and a lot of other idols and false gods. Jewish traditions say that Terah was actually an idol merchant who sold false gods. Isn't that interesting? That's what Jewish Jewish tradition teaches about him. Abraham lived somewhere between about 2100 and 1800 BC. He lived around 2,000 years before Jesus Christ even came on the scene. So Abraham lived, think about this, Abraham lived about the same length of time before Christ as we do after Christ. That's really like profound when you think about it. And yet we have the story This narrative in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, of God's interaction with this man. He is considered to be, as I said, the father of Judaism, Islam, and the Christian faith. He he was called by God to journey to the land of Canaan with a promise that God would give him and his descendants that land. He is also the beginning of God's plan to create a people who would worship him and work with him to restore fallen creation. As we'll see, Abraham was an average guy who worshipped idols that God revealed himself to and called to begin the great story of the restoration of all of creation. So I'm going to take you through a lot of scripture today. And the reason I want to do that is I want you to see God's appearances to Abraham and the way God spoke to him. And I want you to begin to think about this story from 4,000 years ago and how it impacts your life right now. Now before we actually get into the text, I want to I want to talk to you for a minute about God's appearances. In the Old Testament, we have a number of stories of God making Himself known to people. Appearances. And, you know, many times when those appearances are portrayed in movies or even in, you know, children's books or whatever it may be, it's almost kind of weird, right? There's many times it's like there's this figure standing kind of in the air, maybe on some clouds, there's light coming from them. We see that with angels, we see that maybe with God, and we get this idea in our mind that Old Testament appearances and even appearances of, of God, of Jesus in the New Testament after the resurrection are kind of, you know, ethereal and weird. But actually what we see many times in the Old Testament is that when God appeared to people, He appeared to them as a man. He came to them in kind of a human form. 
Theologians call these a Christophanies, that is an Old Testament appearance of Christ, or a Theophanies, an Old Testament appearance of God. And when we see these things happen, and it happens many times, the person that is interacting with God sometimes calls, calls the appearance that He came as a man, but they always make clear that it was God. They knew it was God. In fact, many times when they address the Lord, they call Him Yahweh. They call Him the Lord. Okay, so, so imagine this. This guy Abraham, Abram at this point, he's an idol worshiper. He's from a pagan culture. There, has been, there, there is no Judaism. There is no Israel. There is no nation that we would call the people of God. And he's an idol worshiper who's going along, kind of doing his gig, minding his own business, and he comes into this encounter with God, and God appears to him, we see it many times in the text, like a man. And, and the first time he meets him is in Genesis chapter 12. And, and I just want to say something about this text that's really important. If you're a student of the Bible and you want to understand what the overarching story of the Bible is, one of the most important texts in all of Scripture is Genesis 12. It's, it's the place where God begins this story with the nation we call Israel, with his people. He begins to define who he's in covenant with. And it's where he first talks to us. Actually, you might not realize that he talks to us about Jesus. It's where we learn about the redemption of the world. It's where we learn that you and I can know Christ. We can know God. So check it out with me, if you would. Genesis 12, 1 through 4 and verse 7. Look at it on the screen. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How many of you know that's you and I? You ever realize that? That is talking about you and I. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Let's continue to read. So Abram went as the Lord had told him. You notice his immediate response, immediate obedience. We don't see debate. We don't see argumentation. We see response to God. And he went as the Lord had told him. Verse 7, now the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your offspring, I will give this land. Notice his response. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. What does that mean? God spoke to Abram again. He said, I'm going to give you this land. What's Abram's response? Worship. Immediate worship. God's worthy of worship. He's promised to me. He's going to give me this. What is my response? My, my response is sacrifice and worship. Okay, now Genesis 13. Another appearance by Abraham. And he or by God, to Abram, and he continues to reveal himself and take the same promise and expand upon it. By the way, each appearance is an expansion. I want you to notice verse 14, verses 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. Now, let me just tell you that story. Lot is Abram's nephew, and Abram has taken Lot under his wing, and, and as they've worked together, they're, they're both shepherds and they're both developing, you know, a, a large area where they're grazing their sheep and, 
And they begin to notice as their sheep grow and as more and more servants come to both of them that they're having conflict over the land. They're having conflict over the grazing rights. The two families are starting to have tensions, <laughs> kind of like when people that are friends or family members go into business together. You know what I mean? So they're, they're going about you know, this, this, this venture, and there comes a day when Abram recognizes, even from the Lord, that they've got to separate. They've each got to go their own way. And Abram does something profound. He goes to his nephew. Remember, he's the older. He's the one that should be honored. He should get the best. And yet he does something completely against the normal script of that culture. He goes to his nephew and he says, Lot, I want you to choose the best land for yourself. So, of course, Lot looks over here, he looks over here, he looks over here, he looks around himself, and he looks where he sees the area that has the most lush land, and he says, I want that. And Abram goes, okay, it's yours. And because he did that, God turns to him here in the, 15, excuse me, in the, in the 13th chapter of Genesis and he blesses him. And we know as time develops, we know that God actually gave him the best. Because he was willing to defer and give up the best, God gave him the best. Because that which is blessed is best. Amen? That which is blessed is best. When, when you give it back to God, and this is a great principle for all of us because our tendency is to grasp and to say, mine. And when we give our rights up many times and we actually engage in generosity, what God does is He takes what's left over and He makes it more beautiful. He blesses it. So Genesis 13, look at this. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes. I love this constant theme with Abram. Quit looking around you and down at the ground, but lift up your eyes. And some of you, I want to tell you, you need to lift up your eyes. You need to lift up your eyes and look around your life. Right now, you're so, you know, you're so caught up in this little myopic view that you're not seeing the blessings of God all around you. So God says to him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward and all the land, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. So that if you can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Okay, so now we have the second, you know, unveiling of God's promises. Now we'll go to Genesis 15. I want you to see the third. This is another appearance. And, and again, the, the language is beautiful here. Genesis 15, 5 and 6. It says, and he brought him outside and said... Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. I want you to notice what he did. He brought him outside. He was in his tent. Again, like many of us. Think, think about this last year, and I brought this out before, but think about this last year and a half. We, a lot of us got isolated at home or we got isolated in our lives or we started working from home and we went down rabbit holes. We got on the internet. Oh, man. That dark vortex called the internet. And every little thing that somebody said they knew, inside information and all of it, we went down these rabbit holes and we went into these dark worlds and we got, again, myopic. We got isolated. We got alone with our minds, with our fears, with our doubts, 
with all the conspiracies going on in our world, all the different people with the inside information. And as we did that, we lost perspective and we began to miss God's plan. And, and so what does God do? The first thing he does is he brings them outside and he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Think about it. What did God do? Look at the heavens and I want you to see something. When you look at the heavens, your offspring, the blessing of your family line, the generations to come, that's what I want you to focus on. I want you to focus on my promises to you and what I've told you I'm going to do. And I'm going to do those things with your family and I'm going to do those things to the ends of the earth. I'm going to do those things with the nations. What is he saying to us? He's saying, get your eyes back on the things, the promises of God, the things that I've shown you. Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens and look out at your own family and what God is doing. Look and see what God is doing in the earth. Open your eyes and get your eyes off of the stuff you see in your tent. Amen? Amen. And I love what it says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. If you read between the lines, I'm going to tell you what it says, because you, you have it confirmed in Hebrews. And he believed the Lord and God was super happy. He believed the Lord and God had great joy. Because when we believe, God has joy. He has great pleasure. And then Genesis 17, 4 through 8, and this is the last text, and I want you to see this. This is the further expansion, and now God actually changes Abram's name to Abraham, and he says, behold, my covenant is with you. A covenant is an agreement from a greater party to a lesser party with the promises and the vows that that greater party will fulfill what he has said. Okay, so that's an Old Testament, that's a biblical idea of a covenant. So God is saying to Abraham, behold, my agreement with you that I'm going to bring to pass in my power and my ability with my vows and my pledges, not based upon your perfect obedience, not based upon your perfect performance, but based upon what I'm going to do. That's what God is saying. So behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I want you to see that. Not just Israel. I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. It was never God's heart to merely bless the nation of Israel. It was God's heart to touch the whole world and gather in the nations father of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Now, is that powerful or what? And you're like, okay, how does that apply to me? How does that affect me? Well, hopefully you're starting to see it. But I want you to notice a number of things here. I want you to notice that God chooses, God blesses, and God promises. See, he says to him, go to the land I will show you. 
And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and I will make you a great nation. Who's the emphasis, pressure, ownership? Who is it upon? Is it upon Abraham or is it upon God? Now, I want you to think about this in your life because I'll tell you a little story. This last uh, week, a couple days ago, a pastor called me, a friend of mine. He's a beautiful man. He's a man of God. He has an incredible family. He's a good leader. He really has a heart after God. He grew up uh, in Brazil, and then he came to the U.S., and he pastors a church. And uh, he calls me up, and he says, Doug, I just wanted to tell you that I wanted to tell you thank you. And I'm like, for what? He said, well, you told me to read this particular book six years ago. And I got it in an audio book, and my wife and I started listening to it together. And at the time, I wasn't ready for it. And we got maybe halfway into it, and he said, I just got bugged. And I'm like, I don't want to listen to that. Um, and the book was about, here's, here's what the book was about. The book was about failure. The book was not about success. It was about failure. It was about the fact that we're many times pressured and, and we're taught, we're trained in seminaries and Bible colleges, we're trained in university, we're trained in, at home, we're trained in school what it means to succeed and what success looks like. And we're given tools to measure success and, and, and to know that we're doing a good job, but very few of us are ever trained for failure. And yet failure is going to come to every one of our lives at some point. It doesn't mean you're a failure. You're not defined by failure, but failure is going to happen. And so I read this book on failure, and it was profound, and it really impacted me. And it actually gave me a lot of hope. And that was the point of the author. The author's like, you know what? Failure's going to happen. So let's figure out how to deal with it, and let's figure out how to make our failures into something positive, right? And so I shared that with him, and he got annoyed in the middle of it because he's like, this feels like I'm, I'm giving in. Well, sure enough, six years pass, and he has an encounter with God. And here's what, here's what happened. He, he was talking to his wife and his mother-in-law one day, and he came to realize that he lived under this pressure to perform perfectly all the time. Now, part of that was his personality type. Part of that was the home he was raised in. And part of that's being a pastor. And I'll tell you, it's part of it's being a pastor. Because people, you know, people like you. They think you're great when you speak well and all that. But when you don't do what they want them to, or you fall, or you fail, or you blow it, or you have a bad day, man, a lot of times people don't have a lot of grace for pastors. Right? But, but, but more than that, his worst critic was himself. And so he was going along in his life and he began to realize that he had this heaviness in his heart and he was never happy and he never took joy from what he did. Every, and, and not only that, but when things didn't go well, it was always, what am I doing wrong? Why am I a failure? Why can't I get my act together? It was never good enough. And he lived with performance orientation. Any of you know what I'm talking about? Is there anybody alive in this room today? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Come on, let's get real. This is real talk. Okay, so, so he lived in, in his world. It was all up to him. As long as he performed well and did everything right, things should go well. And when they didn't go well, then it must be because he was failing again and he was doing something wrong. And, and so he was talking to his wife and his mother-in-law about this one day. And, and he said right in the middle of it, he was feeling overwhelmed by it. He felt the presence of God come into the room and overwhelm him. And he just began to weep. And he had like a, a couple of days where he was kind of visited by the Holy Spirit. 
And God began to dig all this stuff up and show him, you're just, you're just performing. You, don't, you say you believe in my grace, but you really don't, right? And so he, his life was transformed. Well, many of us do the same thing. When we think about our faith and we think about what it is to follow Jesus, we put all of the pressure on ourselves. And the beautiful thing about these promises to Abraham, because if you know anything about Abraham, Abraham lied. Abraham did deceptive things concerning his wife. Abraham did, you know, he, he did not always do everything perfectly, not even close. You know, sometimes we'll say to people, well, what's the big deal? I'm not perfect. But let, let's be honest, that's the wrong thing to say. You're not even close to perfect. Hello? You're, you're not even within a thousand miles of perfect. You're not even a million miles close to perfect. You are so far from perfect, I am so far from perfect, that perfection is something that only God can do in us. So this idea that somehow we're going to perform and measure up to some kind of standard we have, and when we've done it all right, then God can bless our life, that puts all the pressure on us, and that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So one of the things you see over and over again with Abraham is God's I will statements. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. I'll make your name great. I'll bless you. I'll bless the nations through you. I mean, over and over, I will, I will, I will, I will, and I will. And that wasn't, I will do this if you're a good boy. It was, I'm going to do it, and you're going to fail on the way, but I'm going to do it anyway. And here's what I want to say to you. Now, listen, I'm not excusing sin. I'm not, ex- I'm not saying to you, go out and do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. God's going to bring it to pass. But what I am saying to you is a lot of the pressure you're putting on yourself to perform perfectly in order that your life might be blessed by God is not from God. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not holiness. Don't call it holiness. It's not holy at all. It's a bunch of dead, lifeless religion that is killing you on the inside. And, you, and I'll tell you how I know that. Where's the joy? Where's the celebration? Where's the smile? Why do the outward circumstances always have to be perfect before you're a happy person? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, you know, you're walking in that grace with God and you're living under a smiling heaven and you know you're beloved and it's not because you do everything just right. You know you're there because even when you fall, you kind of fall and you get up and you're like, Lord, I really blew it and I know that breaks your heart, but I thank you that you love me. And that's why Jesus died and that's why the cross has blood on it. It has blood blood for me and all of my sin, no matter how deep and dark it is, and I thank you I can get right back up in confidence and I can walk with you under smiling heavens. One of the other beautiful things about this is, is Abram was blessed to be a blessing to the world. Abraham gives us a pattern for our own lives. Any good thing that God has blessed us with is to be shared with others for their blessing. We are blessed to be a blessing. So I just want to say to you today, if you're here today and you're really smart, and you've got a lot of brain power, it's not for you. It's not for you. Maybe you have the ability to make wealth and have nice things. I want to tell you something. It's not just so you can have big houses, cars, boats and all the rest of it, and nice vacations. It's so that you can share it 
for the furtherance of God's purpose in your life so you can be kind to others, so that those who need can receive, so you can teach them what you've learned. Amen? Let's say you're an incredibly gifted person. You just, you just have talents and abilities, wisdom. None of that's for you. None of it's for you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. Everything good that you have, you might say, I worked really hard for it. Yes, you did, and even, even your ability to work hard for it was given to you by God. All of it's God's gift. The reason I know that is because if somehow quickly, you know, you have all these abilities, you can work day and night, you can accomplish all these things. If one little thing happened to your health, if one little thing happened in your life where you were not able to get up tomorrow morning and you were bedridden, you'd find out real quick that it's not all about you. It's called gift. It's called grace. It's all grace. Am I talking to anybody? I will, I will, I will. And then God says, I'll bless all the families and the nations of the earth through Abraham's offspring. That was a promise 4,000 years ago. And today, every person on this planet that calls themselves a follower of Jesus and a Christian is the fulfillment and the fruit of a promise from 4,000 years ago. That's beautiful. God will give you the land, make your offspring like the dust of the earth. God promised Abram the land that is now Israel and more. The existence of Israel alone is evidence of God's promise and prophecy. Do you ever think about it? Do you ever step back and realize that so much of what goes on in our planet, we, we, our, our eyes are turned to the Middle East so often? You ever notice that? You ever notice that that little tiny land called Israel seems to be in the news a lot? You ever notice that its existence is a miracle? Maybe some of us that are younger don't, but that nation was born again in 1948 after not existing as a people for, as a nation with borders for a long time. And the Jews that were scattered all over the world came to their homeland and had a homeland again. That alone, its rebirth in 1948, is a miracle that we have to step back and go, when God says it, that settles it. He promised it and it exists. That alone should be astounding for us. God will make your offspring like the stars of the heavens and the dust of the earth. God wants a big family, as numerous as dust and stars. And that's important because a lot of people think that God's plan is about a little tiny remnant hanging on while the rest of the planet goes to hell in a handbasket. But when you look at the promises of God to Abraham and throughout the Bible and in the New Testament, one of the things you see and all through the book of Psalms, one of the things you see over and over again is God has a plan for a giant family of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue like the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore and the dust of the earth. God has a plan for a giant family. That should astound us. I mean, do you think he just made that promise to Abraham so he could say, psych, it's just a little group, right? And that's what, here's the problem. A lot of us have been raised with an idea from our religious background and maybe the tradition we were raised in that there's only certain, a little small group that are the real ones, the real believers, and the rest are all the apostate church. And I'm telling you, when you look at the Scripture, you're like, wait, wow, God has a giant family. And I want you to notice something else that's beautiful. God speaks of stars and dust. And stars we know are in the heavens, and we know dust is on the earth. And what we see there is God's plan throughout the Bible that's unveiled that God cares about the heavens and the earth. And He wants to restore the heavens and the earth. 
And when sin came into the world and the fall happened, a great tear happened in creation. And God's heaven and the earth began to be at war with each other through sin and death. But God's plan is to restore it. And that's important because a lot of people think that the story of God is the story of heaven and hell. You ever notice that? I've had people actually tell me this. The Bible story is this. Heaven and hell, turn or burn. Get right or get left. I'm like, what? You're reading a different Bible than I am. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is not heaven and hell, turn or burn, get right or get left. That's heresy. That's false doctrine. That's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is heaven and earth, married again, all creation restored again, everything fixed again, all pain and sorrow and death removed once and for all. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more death. Heaven comes to earth and is married to it at the end. We don't live in heaven forever. Your ultimate end is not heaven. You think you're going to die and go to heaven? Yeah, you're going to die and go to heaven for a little bit, and then heaven's going to come to earth, and earth and heaven are going to be remade and restored, and everything is going to be those two realms coming together, and once and for all, the veil that's existed between them is going to be torn out of the way, and it's all going to be full of God. That's the story of the Bible. Go look at the very last chapters of the Revelation. It's right there. And I looked and I beheld a new heavens and a new earth. That's God's plan. It's not heaven and hell. It's heaven and earth. It's stars and dust. It's a giant family. It's a covenant with a God who never lies. And it says, Abram believed God and encountered Him as righteous. You know, Abraham's one of the few people in the Bible that God actually calls friend. Isaiah 41.8, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. Abraham is called the friend of God multiple times. And so I don't have time to finish my, my notes. So what does that mean for us? What does this all mean for us? This promise, what does it mean for us? Number one, that God chooses and saves average people for his great story. Average people. There's nothing that indicates that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, any of the Bible characters were special in any way. They weren't great warriors, leaders, religious men. They became great leaders, but they weren't when God chose them. Abraham was an average idol worshiper who God chose to know him and make him known. God still chooses average people for his great purposes. See, that's the beauty. He chooses people just like you and me. You know, I, I used to think I was above average. I'm not. I couldn't realize I'm not. I'm just average. But God takes average people like us and He breathes His life into them and touches them and uses them for great things. Amen? Secondly, when God makes a promise in Scripture, we can trust Him to bring it to pass. I'm a child of Abraham. Father Abraham, many sons. I know you were waiting for it. Been waiting all day. When's he going to sing it? When's he going to I hope he sings it soon. It's my song. Thirdly, God saves a people for himself through the offspring of Abraham, and that is Jesus. And we become children of Abraham and children of God through faith. I want to put up this last text, and I want you to see it. This is the New Testament, Galatians chapter 3. Verses 7 through 9. Look at this with me. Did it work this time? Oh, beautiful. 
Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Now, just so, so you, you may not be aware of the Bible, so God made His promises to Abraham in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis means beginnings. That's what the word means, beginnings. Galatians is all the way over here in the New Testament. And it's a letter that Paul wrote to a church that he'd begun that was made up mostly of people who were former pagans, okay? They, didn't, they, they were not Jewish, okay? So this is about 2,000 years after God spoke to Abram, to Abraham, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and look what he says. This is profound. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What's that mean? Justify means to make right, declare right with God. And Gentiles are those that are non-Jews, you and me, non-Jewish people, by faith. So what's it saying? The Scripture, foreseeing that God would make right the non-Jewish people of the world by faith, preached the gospel, notice this, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Where did he do that? In those promises. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. 